0: Well, you heard me. I said good morning, right? You got that? <clears throat> hey, let's do this. Let's uh, bow our heads together and begin with prayer. God, we just want to come before you now as your children. We come before you as your church, as your chosen ones. Astonished to be able to call ourselves children of God. And, and Father, we come to you knowing that every need that we have, you can meet. And that um, every problem that we have, you can solve. That every challenge we face, you can overcome. And so, God, we come to you now asking you to meet us where we're at. Meet us in your word. Uh, Open our hearts. Speak to us. Not only that we might learn, but that we might be transformed. God, we give you all the praise and thanks as we open your word together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. <clears throat> Do you realize what we just did? We just walked into the throne room of God without an escort, without an invitation, without being held up by a guard, we walked into the throne where the king sits, we climbed up on his lap, and we cried out to him. We, we have this privilege in Christ that because of what Jesus has done, the door is open to us to God. And so we're invited into the throne room, and we get to come in, and we get to jump up on his lap, and we get to look in his eyes, and we get to cry in his shoulder, and we get to to call out to him in our time of need. It's an amazing, amazing thing when you stop and talk about it and think about it. The thing is, we don't usually stop and think about it. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you're used to praying. You, you know, it's a uh, it's, uh, now I lay me down to sleep or blesses food to our bodies or whatever it is. Throughout the day, we we shoot up prayers. Lord, seriously, if you could just move some of these cars out of the way, right? Uh, Lord, this headache is going to kill me. I don't know how I'm going to get through this day. Like, we call out to God all the time. How often do we stop and go, wait a second. I just like came running in to the throne room of God. And he's made it possible for us to do that. Prayer is an amazing, amazing thing. Prayer is also a very mysterious thing. There are so many questions I have about prayer. There are so many things I do not begin to understand about prayer. Uh, And because I'm a pastor, uh, you have those questions too, and you ask me. And I don't have the answers. You know, it's like hey, if God is sovereign and God is going to do his will ultimately, why do we even ask? What difference does it make? To which I go, I don't know. Or, or, you know, it says if I ask, I'll receive. If I seek, I'll find. If I knock, the door will be open. But, you know, sometimes I have asked and not received. What is up with that? And, and. And how does this whole thing work in God's mind where does he really like change his direction because of what I've asked for? Listen, I do not know the answers to most of these questions. There are just mysteries about prayer that leave us baffled. There's a lot that I don't know about prayer. But there are a few things we do know about prayer. Like I know that the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. James 5.16. I know that God commands us to pray over and over and over again throughout the Bible. I mean, just passage after passage. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, Matthew 6.6, 6, Ephesians 6.18. Philippians 4.6, 1 Timothy 2.8, over and over and over, all these verses I have memorized over the years about God commanding me to pray. So I know that even though I don't understand much about prayer, I know He wants me to do it. In fact, He wants me to do it so much that He commands me to do it. I know that. And I also know from experience that it It's easy to lose heart when we pray. And it's easy to give up when we pray. Um, From before I was born, my mother was an alcoholic. She was drunk every single day of my life from conception through my entire childhood all the way, teenage years, the whole thing. There was never a day when she didn't pass out. It was an everyday thing in our house. It was just part of our lifestyle. And I hated it. And when I came to know Jesus at 14, my mom's drinking became the number one issue on my prayer list. And I prayed every day, multiple times a day. Every time I smelled it on her breath, every time I saw another bottle in the trash can, Every time I came home at 5 or 6 in the evening from basketball practice to find her sprawled out on the kitchen floor, passed out, every time I was reminded I got to pray, I got to pray that God will help her to stop drinking. I got to pray that God will set her free from this bondage. I got to pray. I would go to youth group, and we would sit in a circle and share prayer requests, and I would raise my hand and go, please pray for my mom. She needs to stop drinking. Pray for my mom's drinking. And, and we prayed 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 until I got so sick of praying that I didn't pray anymore. And I just lost heart. What difference does it make? I've been praying every day. Nothing changes. And I just get bitter, I get tired, I get sick of it. Stop praying. And then after a while, something would prick my heart. I'd go, you know what, I've got to pray for her. And I would start praying for my mom again, praying and praying and praying. And I would pray for months and months, and nothing would change, and I would lose heart again, and I would stop praying. And then after a while, I would be reminded, you know, God does amazing things. i got to pray, and I would pray and pray and pray. And after a while, I would lose heart and stop praying again, and so it went for years. And so I know you can easily lose heart. It's easy to give up when you've tried, and you've tried, but you're still not getting the results you want. In fact, that's true not just in prayer, it's true in everything. That's why we have special respect for people who have this unbelievable stick-to-itiveness, these people who hang in there no matter what, right, and don't give up, people like who keep rooting for the Bruins no matter what. (laughs) We have great respect for those people. Some of us do. Probably the most famous uh, anecdote that illustrates this that you've heard before is our dear friend Thomas Edison. Over a thousand failed attempts at the light bulb before he finally got it. Like, how many days did he just close his laboratory door and walk home with his head hanging down going, still dark, still dark in there, I can't get it lit up. And he came back the next day and tried again until eventually he got it. Well, that's a well-known story, but I heard another story recently that is a true story that is amazing that is not well-known. It's about a woman by the name of Cha Sa-soon, and Cha Sa-soon is a South Korean woman, um, and she is a grandmother, and uh, her children grew up and moved away, and her husband passed away, and Uh, she realized, I have no way to get anywhere because she never learned to drive. She always had her husband to drive her. She always had her son to drive her. And once they were gone, there was nobody to drive her. And so she said, you know what? I'm going to have to get a driver's license because she was a poor woman and she had a vegetable garden and that's how she made a living. She grew enough vegetables to eat and enough to sell. And when she expanded her garden, she had more to sell and she needed to go to another village with a load of vegetables. She said, I need a vehicle. I need to learn to drive. And so she wanted to take the driving test. There's just a problem. She was functionally illiterate. She had about two years of education. She really couldn't read. She could sound out some of the stuff and sort of learn to figure her way around things, but she really couldn't read. So when she got on the bus and went down to the government building and paid the five bucks to take the written exam, she failed it because she couldn't read it. And you know what she did? She went again the next day and she failed again. And she went the next day and failed again after a week. She said, I got to get some help. So she paid a driving school. And what she would do is she would go in there. They would read her the questions and the answers. And she would memorize them. Only problem, they changed the order on the test. Every day, five bucks, bus ride, failed test. Bus ride, five bucks, failed test. Bus ride, five bucks, failed test. Every day for 950 days. She failed her driving test 949 times. And on the 950th time, she passed. You need 60% to pass. She got 60%. And she passed. By this time, she was a national news story in South Korea. And the Kia Motor Company heard about it and gave her a brand new Kia as a congratulations gift. (laughs) The thing is, even after she passed, she still had to take the behind the wheel test. (laughs) And there's two behind the wheel tests in Korea that you have to pass. And she took the first one, and guess what? She failed. (laughs) And she failed the next day. And she failed the next day. And she failed the next day. And the fifth day, she passed. She took the second behind the wheel test, and she failed and the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and on the fifth day, she passed. 960 attempts before she drove home from the DMV. Isn't that awesome? That lady has got persistence. And, uh, you know, we respect that. There's just something about persistence that is admirable. There's something about successful people don't give up. They stick to it. We root for Rocky in the movies, not because he's a good boxer, but because every time he gets knocked down, he gets up, right? So there's this thing about persistence that we admire. We know that having to work hard for something produces character. We know that choosing not to quit is a sign of strength, and most of us wish we could be stronger that way. Today... Jesus is going to tell us a story. We've been doing these parables now for the last couple of months, and Jesus is going to tell us a story about a woman who is very much like Mrs. Chaw. She's poor, she's a widow, and she has a big need, and she's persistent. And her story is found in Luke chapter 18, so if you've got a Bible, you're going to want to turn there. And while you're turning to Luke chapter 18... Let me kind of give you some context. The context for Luke 18 is mostly found in Luke 17, where Jesus, it says in verse 22, gathers his closest disciples and is talking with them. So this is not a sermon. This is not when the crowds gathered. This is not the Pharisees coming to him and asking him a question. This is Jesus getting his guys and saying, hey, there's some stuff I want you to understand. And he begins to explain to them. He says, the day is coming when um, the Son of Man won't be here anymore, and we will, you will long for his return. But he's not coming soon. In fact, nobody's going to know when he's coming, but here are some signs. The world will be like the days of Noah. It, it'll be like the days of Noah. He, he says this in um, Let's see, verse 26. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying and being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. In other words, nobody saw it coming. The world was a terrible place. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes and it was all evil all the time. And God was going to destroy... The inhabitants of the earth, it was that bad. But everybody was just going about their business. They were going to work. They were going out to play. They were getting married. They were starting school. They were doing their thing. And all of a sudden, it started to rain and destroyed them all. And if you think that's harsh, he goes, you know what else it's like? It's like the days of Lot, verse 28 It was like the same thing that happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. He's talking about the world in such a place that Sodom is a good comparison. That the days of Noah are a good comparison. He says the Son of Man is going to come back, but not till it's like that. In fact, he closes the chapter with this just gruesome illustration of vultures picking at a dead body. That's what you can look for, he said. So what are you supposed to do when society gets like that? That's where chapter 18 comes in. So that's the context. And in that context, Jesus tells the parable of persistent widow. And Luke does us a favor, because half the time when we read these parables, we're like, what is he talking about? What's the point of this? And it's hard to figure out. Luke tells us before the story what the point is. It's in verse 1. Now he was telling them a parable to show them that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. So we know the point of the parable even before we know the story. The point is that at all times we should pray and not lose heart. Why would we even need to be told that? Because we're gonna live in times that are so difficult that it's gonna be really easy to lose heart. It's gonna be really easy to give up and we ought to pray and not lose heart. So let's read the story. Verse two, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city And she kept coming to him saying, give me legal protection from my opponent. For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night? will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Okay. Every time we look at these stories, we have to put ourselves in the shoes of the original audience. What did they know that we don't know? What did they understand that we don't automatically understand? What was relevant to their culture that isn't relevant in our culture? So let me give you a couple of things. First this would be a common occurrence in their society. See, in those days, the courts belonged completely to men. Women were not allowed in court. And so, if you were a woman and you had a grievance or some sort of a case or some sort of a lawsuit or you needed protection, you couldn't just go and petition the court. Your husband had to go on your behalf, and what if you had no husband? Then your father went on your behalf, and what if you had no father? Then your brother could go on your behalf, and what if you had no brother? Then your son could go on your, own, on your behalf. And what if you had no son? Then your cousin or relative could go on your behalf. But you as a woman were not getting in the court. It's that simple. The only other thing you could do is if you had enough money, you could hire a lawyer, and he would go on your behalf. This woman obviously had no husband, had no son, had no father, had no brother, had no cousin, had no money, had no chance. She's a poor widow, and she's being oppressed, and there's nothing that could be done about it. Now, this is a, a corrupt legal system in those days, and, and we understand that because the legal system in our own country is imperfect. We have corruption in our own legal system, and we know that. We know that the people who have the most money and can afford the most lawyers have the best chance in court, right? We, we know that there's a disproportionate number of minorities that get con- convicted compared to uh, white males who get convicted. We know this, We know that um, there are certain prejudices in the system and we know that there are certain stereotypes in the system that take away the probability of justice. Okay, that's true, we all know that. And at the same time though, don't think that because you know that, you know their situation. You see, for us, we have things like bad cops, right? There are some bad cops who are doing the wrong thing on the street. But for every bad cop, there's a thousand great cops, right? We have some dishonest judges, but for every dishonest judge, there's a whole bunch of guys who go by the letter of the law. So it's not that there's not brokenness in our system, it's that it's the exception rather than the rule. We would like it to be more of an exception, right? But it's still the exception rather than the rule. In their world, it was the rule. This woman, she's poor, she's female, and therefore, she is helpless. There's nothing she could do. And even if she could buy off a judge, she doesn't even have access to do that. In the first century, justice, especially for Jews, was really just unheard of. Because there, there were several court systems, really. There was um, what's known as the Great Sanhedrin. In Jerusalem, there was a reigning court, something like our Supreme Court, only a whole lot bigger. There was 73 judges on the great Sanhedrin. And all of these judges were priests. They were made up of the high priests, the previous high priests who were still living, and any of the other very high-ranking priests, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, um, that ran the society in those days, and there were 73 of them. And the thing about the Great Sanhedrin was it, it ruled in Jerusalem. And um, I said there was 73. I lied. My note says 71. So for those of you who are just about to write me a letter, going go, you got that wrong. 71. And those 71 judges, every one of them an expert in the Old Testament law. Every one of them an expert in the writings of the rabbis throughout the generations. They had a reputation, though, for being unjust. They did what was best in their best interest, not what was in the interest of justice, not what was in the interest of the people, not even what was in the interest of God. These are the same guys, by the way, who sent Jesus to the cross, same guys. Um, So they're the, the great Sanhedrin. They rule in Jerusalem. In other big cities in Israel, there is something called the Lesser Sanhedrin, and the Lesser Sanhedrin is made up of 23 judges. And they're not as high-ranking as these priests that are in Jerusalem, but they are very well-respected, very high-ranking, but they are also known to be corrupt. Everyone knows they're for sale. You can buy them. It's just a matter of money creates influence. And they're heavily influenced by the legalistic religious policies of the Pharisees. They're heavily influenced by the uh, political policies of the Sadducees. and they're appointed by powerful people, and they do what the powerful people want them to do so they can keep their jobs. They're the ones whose job it was to punish you if you broke the smallest letter of the Jewish law. Remember when Jesus' guys were out picking uh, uh, grain as they were walking on the Sabbath, and they got in trouble for that. That's the sort of thing that you would get dragged before the lesser Sanhedrin for, and you would either be fined or jailed because of that. If you were seen carrying something on the Sabbath, you would be fined or jailed. You'd be dragged before the Sanhedrin. Um, if, you, if you didn't tithe appropriately, you would be jailed by the Sanhedrin. Uh, if you didn't uh, go through the ceremonially, ceremonial washing before you went into the worship place, you would be jailed by the Sanhedrin. They had power. <clears throat> you think it's bad, that uh, you know, other Christians look down their noses and judge you. Here, they threw you in jail if you didn't follow all the rules. And that's how it was. So there's these two Jewish courts, and then there's a Roman court. All of the, every town, every village, every city had Roman magistrates. And the Roman magistrates were Gentiles. They didn't uh, care about the Jewish law. They held you accountable to Roman laws. Um, and they were not there to serve justice. They were there to advance the interests of Caesar. And even though they were Romans, they were paid out of the temple tax by the Jews. So they were making all this money paid by the taxation of the Jews, so they were thought of by Jews the same way tax collectors were thought of by Jews. They're hated. So if you're a Jew living in Jesus' day, justice through the courts was like an impossible dream. Just doesn't happen. And from Jesus' story, if we're wondering this fictional judge that Jesus is telling about, what what court is he on? He's apparently one of the Roman magistrates. It says twice in there, he doesn't fear God, and he doesn't fear men. So he is ignoring the commandments of God. He couldn't care less about God. He has no fear of God, and he has no respect for men. So he's probably one of these Roman magistrates. Um, at least the Sanhedrin feared God, but these guys didn't. Uh, this guy, These guys would have been the poster boy for breaking the great commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. They were doing neither one of those. So that's the judge, okay? And there's only one other character in this story, and that is a poor widow. And we're not told what her case was about. We don't know what her opponent was about. We don't know what happened or anything like that. But she's obviously the victim of some kind of injustice or oppression. And she's apparently all alone, as I described. She doesn't have a man to vouch for her. She doesn't have anyone to take care of her. She is literally the picture of helplessness in that society. There is no one who would be used more as an example of helplessness than a poor widow who has no man to help her in his life. In fact, so important, uh, so helpless were these ladies that um, in the Mosaic law, there are laws written that say you have to help widows and you can't oppress widows. And, the, and, and we'll see that in a second. The law says that in numerous places. So apparently, she couldn't go through the normal process of trying to get um, things taken care of in court. So if your picture of her, when you've read this story over the years, is her standing in the court um, pleading with the judge, you have got the wrong picture. She never set foot in the court. How did she even get access to this judge? We can only imagine. She hung out outside the court building until the judge left, and then she followed him to his car. She was on his case, yapping in his ear the whole time, every single day. She was there when he arrived, yapping in his ear the whole time as he walked in. Maybe she figured out where he lived. She's at his house, banging on the window at night. Hey, you've got to give me help. You've got to give me justice. I'm dying here. I need your help. I need your help. Whatever it takes, she's following this guy around, pestering him so that he will give her justice. Um, See, the original audience would have seen that they would have realized this is a picture of tremendous helplessness. She represents the poor. She represents the powerless. She represents the people who have nobody to help them out. She represents people who are the complete mercy of somebody with power. Like you can't fix the problem. You ever felt like that? Perhaps you know what it's like to be discriminated against because of the color of your skin or your accent or your gender or your financial standing or your age or whatever. You know what it's like to be mistreated simply on the basis of something like that. To be denied justice on the basis of something like that. Or, or maybe let's take it from another angle. Maybe... You know what it's like to sit by a hospital bed and just listen to the beeping of the machines because the doctors have said he's too sick for surgery and the medication's not helping. And you know it's a matter of time and the machine beeps every two seconds to remind you that there's nothing you can do about it. Maybe you know what it is. to pack up your desk in a cardboard box and walk shamefully out of the office building having just been fired for something that wasn't your fault and thinking, man, this is going to look terrible on my resume. I don't know how I'm going to get another job. Heck, I don't know how I'm going to pay next week's rent. Maybe you've watched your spouse walk out the door and never come back. There are times in all of our lives when we feel powerless to help ourselves and our only hope is that somebody with more power will come and rescue us that's who this widow represents she represents us now according to the law of moses jewish widows would have never been expected to find themselves in this position Exodus 22, you shall not afflict any widow or orphan. If you afflict him at all, if he does cry out to me, I will surely hear his cry. My anger will be kindled and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Deuteronomy 24, 17, you shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment in pledge. Isaiah put it positively Here's what he says in Isaiah 117, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless and the widow. In other words, this widow should have never been put in this position. All of Israel should have been looking out for her, but nobody was. Nobody was pleading her case. Nobody was coming to her aid. She's left at the mercy of this judge, and he's a scoundrel. And by the way, the lesson of this parable is that we should keep seeking justice from God and not lose heart, right? We should keep crying out to God when he's the only one who can help us. That's the point. Luke already told us that. But don't make the mistake of confusing this judge and God. The judge doesn't represent God. This judge is unjust. God is just. This, this uh, judge is corrupt. God is holy and incorruptible. So the judge doesn't represent God. The unjust judge serves as a glaring contrast to God. So Jesus is telling this story so that you'll understand... Even this wicked, selfish guy who doesn't fear God and doesn't care anything about people still does the right thing just to get this woman off his back. And if that's what he will do, being an unjust judge, how much more will your heavenly Father who has all power, all mercy, all grace, all love, how much more will he do for you, his children? So it serves as a contrast Remember the context. Jesus has been talking about the coming time when the world is going to be very, very wicked. When true justice is going to be really hard to come by. When the vultures are going to be circling around. And in many ways, the society Jesus describes in Luke 17 looks a lot like a lot of societies today, including in many ways our own society. Society made up of people who don't fear God where those in power don't serve the weak, but they serve themselves. Where it's hard to find upright people who will come to the aid of the oppressed. Where people's rights get violated, where people's dignity gets trampled. We all know what I'm talking about. We see it every day. You, you, you read about it every day. You hear about it on the news. The poor are oppressed everywhere. The poor have been oppressed for all time in every culture since the fall of man. It has always been true that those who have power tend to use it to oppress those who don't have power. And it's not about the system of government and it's not about race and it's not about tribalism and it's not about culture. It's not about any of those things because it crosses all of those barriers and we see it happen everywhere. The, those who are strong tend to oppress those who are weak Minorities are devalued and mistreated all around the world. Syria is a perfect example of that today. Just, just all of these people being driven out and becoming refugees, and there are countries who won't even allow them to come in as refugees. Even our own country is limiting the number of them who can come as refugees, and, and they're just stuck. They just can't help themselves. And it doesn't look like anybody else is gonna help them, right? But it's not just Syria. Um, This happens all over Africa. It's happening all over South America. It's happening in East LA. It's happening in Beverly Hills. This is what a fallen world does without Christ. So he's using an example that should be familiar to all of us. The weak are being oppressed by the strong. And it doesn't matter if it's a schoolyard bully or a corrupt judge or a corrupt politician. The weak tend to oppress the strong. The strong tend to oppress the weak. And a lot of people I know are getting pretty discouraged about it. But where do we turn in the midst of all that injustice? See, this is the thing that's really starting to bug me. Where do we turn in the midst of all this injustice as Christians? A lot of us turn to Twitter. Like seriously, I have seen more things in social media in the last couple of years that are uh, people expressing frustration about injustice. Everybody runs to social media and we all put it out there and we're going to tweet something whenever we see something that we don't like or better yet, retweet something because then we don't even have to really think about it. We could just give a thumbs up to somebody else's ridiculous rhetoric and we stick it out there, right? And it doesn't matter what your social media pre- um, preference is. It happens across all of them. Um, or think about this. It's um, election time again and, and everybody has an opinion. Do we, we need to throw out this party so we can get this party in because this party will fix everything. But then this party comes in and we go, oh my goodness, what were we thinking? We got to throw them out and bring this party in because this party could fix everything. If only we get that guy out of the office or get this woman into the office or get her out of the office. And if we just change things politically, we could fix all this. We cry out to our politicians to be the solution to these kinds of things. Or we start some kind of grassroots campaign and We're gonna get a GoFundMe thing together. We're gonna boycott uh, some organization or whatever. Now listen, I am not against using social media to make important points. I am not against voting for politicians who have the agenda that you believe is most important. I am not against grassroots campaign. Here's what I'm saying though. When we run to all of those kind of things first, have we forgotten who our father is? How is it that for so many of us, our first response is to get out there and say something in social media? Our first response is to call a friend and cry on her shoulder. Our first response is to try to get some politician elected. Have you ever thought that maybe our first response should be to fall on our face before a holy God and cry out to him and say, Daddy, help us? I'm afraid we might have forgotten who our father is. When I was in fourth grade, I, I, this was true for fourth grade boys when I was in fourth grade. And I think it's probably true today, too. Like, one of the greatest things for my life was professional wrestling. <laughs> it was the best. And, and um, at that time, this is a long time ago, at that time, the heavyweight champion professional wrestler in the pro wrestling ranks was a guy whose character name was the great John L. And he was this bald guy. Some of you will remember me. He was bald. He had a handlebar mustache, and he used to do uh, commercials for bell potato chips. and you'd see him on there eating the potato chips. Anyway, if you're old like me, you remember that. Um, great John L was the heavyweight champion of the world when I was in fourth grade, and his son was in my class. And so he used to come to our classroom all the time and hang out with all of us boys. Teach us wrestling moves and all this kind of stuff. I was convinced he was the greatest person in the world. Now here's the thing, he was massive. He had muscles on top of his muscles. He was scary. And he was a character on television who would growl and scream and go, whoa, this guy's so scary. Here's the thing, I tell you all of that to tell you this. None of us ever picked on his son Never once. Man, We nobody bullied him. We picked him for our teams. We treated him great. None of us ever took a chance because we did not want to face his dad. Have we forgotten who our dad is? If you're a Christian, your daddy is the king of kings. If you're a Christian, your daddy created the universe and by his power it is held together. Your dad has power over kings and presidents and princes and parliaments and anything else that starts with a P that has power. (laughs) Your dad gives breath to the people who make the laws. He has power over armies and navies and nuclear weapons. He has power to give life. He makes prison walls fall down. Your dad. Your dad makes the chains of bondage break in all of our lives. Your dad. Your dad is the alpha and the omega and the beginning and the end. And when he came to earth, they killed him. And guess what? He rose again. Your dad is the most powerful being that has ever been or ever will be. And yet, when we are oppressed, when we are hopeless, when we are hurting, when we are mistreated, we run everywhere but to our dad. Have we forgotten who our father is? God has all power. He tells us that we can access that power through faithful, persistent prayer. You know the passage in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, he says, ask and you shall receive, right? Seek and you shall find. Knock and the door will be open to you. What you may not know about that passage that is so famous is that it doesn't really say that in Greek. What it says in Greek is, keep asking and you will receive. Keep asking seeking, and you will find. Keep knocking, and the door will be open. For everyone who keeps asking receives, and everyone who keeps seeking finds, and everyone who keeps knocking has the door open to him. The The Greek tense of the, of the verb it begins now and goes on forever. He's saying, start knocking, and don't stop knocking. Start asking, and don't stop asking. Start seeking, and don't stop seeking. This issue of persistence in prayer seems to have eluded us in our current society where everything has got to be done in 10 minutes or it's not worth having i don't know exactly why but god doesn't always rescue right away he doesn't always speak to me when i think i need to hear him he doesn't always provide the first moment that i feel the need for his provision For some reason, he commands us to persistently seek him, to pray without ceasing, to not lose heart when we're crying out to him. Luke says that Jesus told this story so that we would keep praying and not lose heart. And that Greek phrase, not lose heart, it means literally to not give up out of weariness. He's saying, I know that it's going to get wearisome. Don't give up, keep going. And, and that phrase is used in Paul's uh, writings all the time. 2 Corinthians 4, we do not lose heart. Same Greek phrase. Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary while doing good. Same phrase. Ephesians three thirteen: do not lose heart at my tribulations. Same phrase. First, uh, 2 Thessalonians three thirteen: do not grow weary in doing good. Same phrase. He's saying life sometimes gets hard. It sometimes makes you weary. It sometimes wears you out. And it's at those times we need to be reminded, don't stop asking. Don't stop seeking. Don't stop knocking. Even in the last days, even when things are darker than they've ever been, even when the vultures are circling overhead, even when you don't see how you can go on, pray and do not lose heart. You know why? Context tells us Jesus is coming. Even when it's dark, pray and do not lose heart. Jesus is coming. It might look like the days of Noah out there. Pray and do not lose heart. Jesus is coming. It might feel like you're living in Sodom, but keep praying and don't lose heart because Jesus is coming If an unrighteous judge comes through for a persistent widow, how much more can you expect the God of the universe to come through for his own children? Keep praying and don't lose heart. Jesus is coming. I don't know what you're going through right now, but my guess is that in a room this size, there's some people going through some serious stuff, some hardship. And it may seem dark, might seem hopeless. But God has not lost sight of you. even though He doesn't always rescue when we want Him to, even though He doesn't always ask you uh, rescue how we want Him to, He promises that in His perfect time, He will make all things new, He will set all things right. So maybe you need to develop a new habit. Instead of tweeting about what's bothering you. Pray and do not lose heart. Instead of looking to some earthly leader to save everybody and make it all right, pray and do not lose heart. Instead of calling your friend and crying on a shoulder, pray and do not lose heart. Maybe before you turn to all those weaker sources of hope, you should put your hope in the only one who is truly able to do anything about your helpless situation. By the way, if you don't know, when I was 18 years old, Still 18. my mom took her last drink. She didn't drink another drop for the rest of her life. She met Jesus. She got set free. And those prayers weren't answered. Amazing. I had never known her sober. Never seen her one day sober. And I got to spend the next 20 years getting to know my mom. What an awesome God we serve. And I learned something. I learned that no matter how dark it gets or how long it takes, I should keep praying and not lose heart because Jesus is coming. Let's bow our heads together. God, thank you. Thank you for the many ways you have proven yourself to us. Thank you for your faithfulness. When we were utterly helpless and unable to save ourselves, while we were yet sinners, you sent your Son to die for us, Lord. You set us free when we were in bondage. You make all things new. And God, for each and every person who is hearing this, and whose heart is breaking because of the oppression, because of the injustice, because of the helplessness. I pray, God, that there would be a sense of your comforting, that there would be a sense of you holding us close, that there would be a sense of you coming to the rescue, and that we would have the courage, the faith, to keep praying and not lose heart.